0: Good morning, I want to encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 3, we're going to be reading actually Romans 3.21 through 4.12, but we're just going to read chapter 3 first today. If you would stand as we read God's holy word, we know that it is relevant for us today even as it was 2,000 years ago and before Paul writes, beginning in verse 21 of Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through His redemption that is in Christ Jesus by faith, apart from the works of the law? Or is God the God of the Jews only? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And these are some difficult, perhaps, words as we read them. For some, they're difficult because of of what they mean, and for others, because they are unfamiliar. I just pray that you would help us to understand today. You would help us to agree with your wisdom, and Lord, change us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I like Romans chapter 3. It's uh, It's been a challenging reading so far. We see Paul as he wrestles through what it means to be sinful and the fact that sin has captured everyone in its net. And then some of the arguments that he gives, they're, they're great questions and they're logical conclusions when he says, is God the God of the Jews only? You know, we I didn't actually finish the last part of chapter 3, but it says, is he not the God of the Gentiles also? That's a very good question. But one that the people of Israel were not ready to think through. And and he answers most of his questions throughout Romans because this isn't just about throwing up good questions like rhetorical flourishes and then just letting them hang and and fade away. Paul, Paul takes them on straight. He says, yes, God is the God of Gentiles also because God is one. You don't have a God of the Gentiles and a God of Jews and, and a variety of different gods. You have one God who is the creator, who is holy, who is just, who is to be worshipped by all, Jew and Gentile. And he says, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. You know, Paul, Paul just doesn't ever mince words. He, he isn't nice in that sense or appropriate or politically correct, right? Right? And then he asks more questions, and we'll see them, we'll answer them. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? No. By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. And so you get through chapter 3, and your head's probably spinning because there are unfamiliar words there, Heron. There are difficult concepts, but I want to help you understand them today. You see, in the years leading up to the Babylonian exile, the people of Israel, they believed they were safe from danger because false prophets told them that they were righteous and that they were protected by God. Here's what God had to say about that in Jeremiah 5. He says, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets are prophesying falsely. Of course that's horrible and appalling. And the priests are ruling at their direction. The false things that they're proclaiming, the priests are listening to. And then the people, they love to have it. So, why? Because that's what they want to hear. It makes them feel better about themselves. And they had absolutely no idea truly what was about to happen. God was about to send the Babylonian army in judgment. And I say they didn't know what was about to happen, although they would have if they had listened to men like Jeremiah and Joel and Amos. But instead, they were listening to the the louder voice of the false prophets who spoke only of a false security. And that's why Solomon says, you know, what has been is what will be. It's in Ecclesiastes 1.9. And what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. That's not just to say that we have the same types of experiences. It has to say also that the same types of sins, the same patterns, right? This has happened all throughout Israel's history. Just as the prophets of Jeremiah's day failed to warn their hearers of the danger they were in. It was happening again in Paul's day. The religious leaders were falsely proclaiming a deluded gospel. They were failing to warn those who listened to them. And yet it's not as if, remember how I said, it's not as if the people in Jeremiah's day didn't have Jeremiah and Joel and Amos speaking truth to them. And Paul says it's not as if you, the Old Testament scriptures haven't been preparing you for this. That's why he says in verse 21 the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It's not a surprise. There is a sense in which the righteousness of God in a new way, apart from the law, is being manifested or displayed, evidenced in Paul's day, but the law and the prophets had had prepared everyone for this moment. How had they prepared for it? Well, in chapter two, and in the first half of chapter three, Paul wrote that despite possession of the law being a great advantage to Israel, course it was, yet it did not rescue them from bondage to sin. Instead, what did we learn last week? We learned that the law brings a knowledge of sin. It revealed the state that they were in, how sinful they were, and the prophets had constantly pointed Israel to that truth, and when God gave his people the law through Moses He instructed them, I want you to build a tabernacle. And later it became the temple. And here the people would, because of their knowledge of sin that was revealed by the law, they would bring their animals, right, and their sacrifices and offerings. And in this sense, both because of the law revealing sin and the prophets telling them that there was no way through the law to fix their sin, by their action of sacrificing constantly and it not being a permanent solution, it was all a constant witness. It was a testimony of the need for forgiveness outside of the law. All that the law can do is reveal God's perfect standards and our constant failure to live up to them. And that's why the words, but now, that start in verse 21 are so sweet. Those are wonderful words. After centuries of a need for something outside the law to provide redemption, Paul says that the righteousness apart from God is revealed. In the early 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words, but now. Now. Why would he say it? It's because given what Paul has said so far, we arrive at verse 21 hopeless, don't we? We're hopeless when we get to verse 21. And the natural question is, is there any way to be rescued from this burden and weight and bondage of sin? And that is a great question, and it means that the law is working in our hearts if we're going to ask that question. It means that it's driving us to Christ, that we need to seek help. But that's not usually what we're asking by this point. Sadly, as sinful people, we will always minimize our sin. We will exalt our natural abilities, right? Make excuses for ourselves, endless plans for our salvation on our own efforts. We would rather listen to teachers that proclaim to us a false and easy peace than to hear what Paul has been writing. And verse 23 is clear. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned. Does that mean you? Yes. Does that mean me? Absolutely. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Did you know that 85% of American adults believe that they will stand before God to be judged and that hell exists, but only 11% think that they might go there? To hell, that is. That's because of what the false teachers are saying today. Paul reminds us that our God is righteous. We've seen that term a lot in Romans so far. and The word righteous means to do what is morally right. What does it mean for God to do what is right? It means that he always acts consistently with his own character. He will never, for example, say to us, do not lie, and then himself lie. Whatever God expects of us with regard to obeying his law is there in that law because it reflects his character and what he would do in our place. Our passage, though, talks about our righteousness apart from or outside of the law. And what that means is God is perfectly holy. He is perfectly good. And we are completely depraved and dead in our sin. And because God is righteous, remember the word righteous means you all, he always does what is morally right, which is consistent with his character. Because he is always righteous, that means... He is holy. He expects us to perfectly obey his law. And when we don't, it means he must consistently act as consistent with his justice and condemn us in judgment. And this is why Lloyd-Jones is excited about the phrase, but now, because God determined. He determined a way to judge sin that would be consistent with his character and yet also able to save us. And but now says, the time has come. Here's the moment. And what would that be? What is the life raft that is thrown to all of us as we get through to Romans 3.23, where it says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? What is the life raft where we've learned that it's Jew and Gentile? All of us are... Caught in sin, it is what we find in these first verses here, verse 24 and 25. We are justified by His grace as a gift. A gift. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, how could there be any better news? Because God does not grade on a curve. He doesn't look at the, at the mean or the average or the median. He expects absolute perfection, friends. And yet, the typical American does not like that gospel. Gospel. He doesn't want to hear about sin and powerlessness and hopelessness. He won't respond to news about his sin unless the church dresses up the message with other offers. He's not interested in absolute statements, particularly about being perfectly obedient. And he's not terribly interested in his future if it means sacrificing things that he likes. And so trying to reach him through concern for his eternal destiny or telling him what God commands is not very effective. What he is interested in is feeling better about himself right now. He's asking, what can help me deal with this pain that I'm struggling through? He's interested in his marriage and his friendships and his career and his recovery from, from past issues and so on. That's why it is so tempting for false teachers and prophets to provide that type of teaching. And while it is true that there are many benefits to the Christian life, these benefits must not be confused with the gospel. It's important that we understand that. The gospel's not about helping you feel better about yourself and your circumstances. Fundamentally, the gospel is about Your rebellion against a holy and wrathful God who will ultimately condemn you to hell unless you surrender and repent. That's what Romans 1 through 3 is saying. Only Christ can provide forgiveness for sin. And the church and its people are charged with proclaiming that message. And so we have to be bold. And realize that if we are truthful, if we're truthful about that part of the gospel, well then when we get to Romans 3, 24 through 25, this is wonderful, joy-fulfilling news. How can God expect such a high standard of perfection and yet remain righteous when we fail to achieve it Verse 26 says it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is righteous because He is both just in judging us for our sins and He is the justifier, the one who makes, who declares us righteous through His actions. Paul says in Titus 3.5 that God the Son, by his mercy alone, and not because of your value and worth, became a man, died on the cross, took the penalty for your sin, the wrath of the Father upon himself, and he was able to justify you, which means that he was able to declare you righteous even though you weren't. Because Jesus was resurrected from the dead in order that you might not have to die for your sin so that you could have his righteousness, not yours, his righteousness imputed to you. I know that's hard, especially maybe for some of you younger ones to to fully understand what it is that God did. But I want you to understand a few things. First, this is a gift from God. It begins with what he started as a work, what he finished as a work. It's totally dependent upon his power. He is both just and he is the justifier. And you must believe that. That's what God is asking of you and me. Martin Luther was used by the Lord to recover this particular doctrine 500 years ago in the Reformation said that what we believe about these few verses that we've just been reading is appointed for the rise or fall of the church. He thought that the doctrine of justification was that important. Because the gospel is not about Christ waiting outside the door of your heart, knocking frantically, just hoping that you will one day hear and open the door. It's not that Christ will meet you with all of your needs and, and give you personal fulfillment and happiness. The gospel is that Jesus Christ is King, and that King, for his glory and out of love and grace, took your place, atoned for your sin because God is just. But then the Lord, in His mercy, applied christ's righteousness to you and declared you righteous to justify you. so you what I'm saying, friends, is as hard and as kind of heartrending and soul exposing as the first three chapters have been, don't leave chapter 3 without a skip in your step. Because this is wonderful news. In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1, Paul writes when I came to you brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, he's saying I didn't come with Fancy arguments and I didn't come with a bunch of practical advice and try to tie Christianity together with Greek culture and paganism and try to make it appear relevant. No, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And to the one who hungers and thirsts for the righteousness of God that Paul talks about in verse 21, there is redemption and salvation in Jesus. And so the question is, do you hunger and thirst for that kind of righteousness that you don't possess in yourself that you can't create through works. Thank the Lord that there is justification apart. There is righteousness that God displays apart from the law because we would all be dead under the law. And later Paul will say there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus but as long as we remain self-righteous friends, as long as we think we can save ourselves, we can't move past these first three chapters. We're just not ready for it. What comes next? I know that so many of us have been taught things like the early bird gets the worm, no pain, no gain, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You get what you pay for. God helps those who help themselves. Those are all the mantras of American culture. Lift yourself up by your own bootstraps, all of those things. That was true of Paul's readers as well. And and their natural question was, well, we've lived our lives regularly sacrificing for our sins, relying on our relationship to Abraham. How can you say that one is justified by faith apart from works. And Paul knew his readers would wonder about that question. And so he says something important and then asks a logical question. First, he says in verse 25, God put forward Christ Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Now, we can't fully appreciate what Paul has just said here. But I want to help you understand. In Greek, which is what Paul is writing this in, the word propitiation is the word hilasterion. And guess where that word appears elsewhere in the Bible? It appears one other time in the New Testament and many times in the Old Testament. Let me show you in Hebrews 9.5. It says, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. What is he talking about? He's talking about the Ark of the Covenant in the temple and in the tabernacle. The author of Hebrews says, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the hilasterion, the mercy seat. And of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. The mercy seat was a term used to describe what was taking place on the cover of the ark. Because once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come in and pour sacrificial blood as the symbol of God showing his mercy and forgiveness to the entire nation of Israel. And then when we go to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, every time the word hilasterian appears, it is in referring to that, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And so when Paul uses the word here in Romans chapter 3, what is he saying? He's saying, in effect, that God put forward Jesus Christ as the mercy seat. He's saying that the ark of the Old Testament with its mercy seat and the blood of animals sacrificed was a type, a symbol that foreshadowed the full mercy that would happen in Jesus through the atonement of his blood. And Paul says that in time past, God passed over our former sins. He doesn't mean that Paul didn't punish sin. What he means is that God was willing to look forward in time to Jesus' atonement because ultimately the blood of animals does not atone for anything. But God in his forbearance overlooked sin in the past because he looked forward to the real mercy seat, to the sacrifice of the true lamb who takes away the sins of the world because he knew he would forgive them in the Old Testament the same way he forgives us through Jesus Christ. Salvation is the same in the Old Testament period and the New Testament period. The Israelites brought animals. Blood was poured upon the mercy seat. What they were doing, in essence, was looking forward in faith to what Jesus would do for them. He is the true mercy seat. He is the propitiation for us. And then I said Paul asks a logical question next. In verse 31, he anticipates what his readers will ask. He says, do we then overthrow law by this faith? I mean, if Jesus is the mercy seat, then perhaps really the law and the sacrificial system is all irrelevant. Perhaps the whole Old Testament is irrelevant. But then Paul writes, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And that's what chapter 4 is all about. Here Paul takes two of the biggest heroes of the Old Testament, Abraham and King David, and proves that they too were justified by faith. Let's take a look at it. Verses 1 through 4 in chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? I mean, what relevance was that, right? What, what happened there? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham, one of the greatest men of history, honored throughout the world, revered in three world religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Obviously, highly regarded by Israel in in Christ's time to the Jews, he was the epitome of righteousness, after all, he is the one that got, He was the one that received the covenant and promises from God. The rabbis in, in Jesus' time taught that Abraham was justified by his works of righteousness, that he earned his way into God's good pleasure. In the book of Jubilees, written just before Christ, we read these words, Abraham was perfect in all his dealings with the Lord and gained favor by his righteousness throughout his life. Does that match the book of Genesis? Was Abraham perfect in all of his ways? But what was it that made Abraham a friend of God? It was not because he was such a great guy. What do verses 5 through 6 say? Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, Abraham being one of many subjects of who is ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David, now he loops in David in there, another big hero also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Paul's including Abraham in the ungodly category. And we know that to be true if if we read our Bibles and knew our Bibles and our stories we knew that Abraham lived in the city of Ur of the Chaldees, what is now southern Iraq. Southern Mesopotamia was a large city which lay just east of the Euphrates River, an amazing feat. Ancient engineers had diverted some of the river's water many miles across the desert to empty into a man-made harbor inside the city. And people would come down in boats, rafts with their things to trade down the Euphrates from the mountains in the north and the Assyrian region there up above in the north, just below modern Turkey, and they'd sail right in through the city wall and into the harbor district, and they'd be greeted by local scribes, catalog... Don't think of the time of Abraham, just because it's thousands of years ago, as somehow being so antiquated that it wouldn't resemble today. Yes, remove some of the technology, but you've got trade and all kinds of things going on in Ur, one of the major cities of its time. But like most of the Mesopotamian cities, most of the cities throughout the whole world, in Abraham's time, it was polytheistic. And people there believed in multiple gods and goddesses. And God even told Israel through Joshua, in Joshua 24, 2, that long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. But despite this, God chose to call Abram out of Mesopotamia, out of sin, out of a polytheistic family, to start a nation through him that would become, as Exodus 19 describes, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And even after leaving Ur, Abraham still struggled with sin. When famine strikes the land, he decides he can't eat a promise. And so he goes down to Egypt. And they're fearful that the Egyptians will consider Sarah, his wife, beautiful and desire to take her and potentially kill him. While he jeopardizes Sarah's well-being and character by saying that she's his sister. And there are more incidents. But suffice it to say that Abraham was an ungodly man. And Paul's point in verse 5 is that God justifies even the worst of ungodly men on the basis of faith. And God did the same thing with you, friends. Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Just as God chose Abraham and took the initiative to call him out of a life of sin, God chose you before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and blameless before him. But chapters one through three have Thoroughly convinced us that holiness and blamelessness is not possible. Well, that's why in love, to the praise of his glorious grace and the perfect display of his righteousness, he first justified you so that he could then adopt you. Did you hear that, friends? It is impossible for you to be holy and blameless. And yet God determined... Before the foundation of the world, that he would first justify you and then he would adopt you. The same author that writes chapters one through three of Romans writes this magnificent chapter of Ephesians. And when you put them together, isn't that wonderful news? That's the gospel. Both sides. And what made Abraham a friend of God, what makes you a son and daughter of God, is not good behavior, but rather for Abraham that he believed what God told him, including the promise to give him children that would rival the number of stars when he and Sarah were too old to have children. As Paul says down in verse 17, Abraham knew that God was able to bring something out of nothing, despite the fact that he knew situation. He had confidence in God. He did leave Ur when God called him. He did set up his tent in a land that he would never physically possess or own but believed that God would give to his descendants. He believed God in the hardest test that any father would ever face when God asked him to sacrifice the son of the promise, Isaac. Right? But it was all because he believed God. Friends, you may think you have to do something in order to be approved by God, but what Paul is trying to help you see is that in the Old Testament, before there was even a law to obey, because Abraham was before Moses, before there was even an, a law, an official law, written down anyway, to obey, Abraham, the first of the patriarchs of Israel, one of the greatest heroes in the Jewish faith, believed God, and that was counted to him as righteousness. Even though he still struggled with sin, even though he was an ungodly man and did not deserve God's grace, he did not earn God's approval. He believed God. That's what you're asked to do. And that term counted that we see in verse 3 occurs more than 10 times in these verses and in the ones that follow. It was used with regard to financial and commercial matters. It's, It's where we get the term accounting. There's probably nothing more objective and unemotional than accounting. Numbers don't lie, as they say. People can make numbers say things, but the numbers themselves don't lie, at least for trustworthy accountants. And accounting procedures are expected to be objective. You don't know how your bank feels when it sends out your monthly statement, right? doesn't matter, really, because the statement is completely objective. It reflects what there is. Much routine accounting is done by computers today. And and now imagine a celestial computer that has your name on its screen. and, And it has your ledger on there. Every rotten, sinful thing that you have ever done, all listed out, In 24-point font, Times New Roman, on the computer in red. All your lies, your lust, your pride, your selfishness, it's all there. And another screen has Jesus' ledger. And all of his righteousness is listed there. Not a speck of sin is itemized because he knew no sin. He never lived one second in which he was anything less than perfectly following the will of the Father. Now, according to Paul, God makes a decision, and that's the word in Greek that's being used there. He takes all of the unrighteousness in your account, and he credits it to Jesus' account. And that's what Paul means when he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him to be sin who knew no sin. There was no sin. And yet, cut and paste. Right over there. Did that defeat Christ? No, but like Paul has been saying, so that God could be proved righteous, consistent with his character. Jesus bore the Father's wrath as if he had been the one who had sinned. Can you wrap your mind around that at all? The Father was willing to treat Jesus as your substitute, as if he was the one who did all the sins that mark your ledger. But because in reality... He had never sinned. He was not worthy to remain in the grave. And so he rose again. What happened to our side of the ledger? Cut and paste. And the nice thing about it is that there's no control Z operation to put it back. Because God says he chooses to remember your sins no more. You know how sometimes when you close a document, it says, shall I retain all of that uh, data in the memory on the computer, the clipboard, right? Or shall I let it go? It's like God says, let it go. Close the document, it's done. But that's not all. We weren't just left with a blank... Here's imp- another important thing to realize. You were not ju- it wasn't just that God at some moment in time w- took everything out in a cut and paste operation, moved it over there and said, okay, it's clean now, don't do anything else. Don't add something else because once you do, he who's fallen, right, who is broken, one of these commandments is broken, all of them, James. We don't want that to happen now what happens is god takes the cut and paste from jesus's account and puts it on yours you are declared to be righteous and the rest of that verse in second corinthians 5:21 reads so that in him by being in him we might become The righteousness of God. We are a, read this right, the words right. We become the righteousness of God. That says is, in Christ, we become a testimony to the righteousness of God. His righteousness is imputed and credited and reckoned to our account. God has been able to say, I have been both just in punishing sin and I have been gracious in justifying you who did not deserve it. All has been taken care of. Was Abraham the only example? No, in verses 7 through 8, Paul talks about King David There's more written about David than any other person in the Bible apart from Jesus Christ. 66 chapters in the Old Testament all dedicated to him. Suffice it to say, he is one of the, if not the central figure in the Old Testament. Certainly as top five alongside of Abraham and Moses and others. How did David come to be so favored by God? Was it through a lifetime of good works? No. No. I mean, you probably would agree that David fits the definition of ungodly even more, perhaps at least from what we know, than Abraham. He was certainly flawed in so many ways. But what does Paul write? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And when when he's saying these words, guess what he's doing? He's actually quoting David himself. David in Psalm 32 wrote these words after he had committed adultery and murder. He wrote these words. Blessed are the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are are covered. Against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Again, again. Even in the Old Testament, this this thought of, I'm not having this accounted to me as I should. Why? Because of faith. But ultimately, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God would never again count David's sin against him. But not without consequence, friends. And and please hear this just because God forgives sin and will not impute sin to you, but imputes Christ's righteousness to you that does not remove the consequences of your sin. There's much pain and heartache that followed David's life as a result of his past sins. But David was justified freely through God's grace, ultimately through Jesus Christ. He didn't deserve it, but he served a God who is both just and justifier. I want you to remember that phrase today. If there's something, you know, Most of you, if I ask you in three weeks what I spoke on today, will have a very difficult time. Much to my eternal unhappiness. Every every month, you'll forget in three weeks what I spoke on today. But if you'll remember this, God is both just and justifier. David served a God who justifies the ungodly even when they don't deserve it. And remember what Paul said in verse 23 of the last chapter, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That applies to all of us. We're not Abraham and we're not David. We're not even Israelites. Is there hope for us Gentiles? Well, that's what verses 9 through 12 are for in the end of our section of reading. It's what gives us hope. Paul says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? Is it available to us, the Gentiles? For we say, says Paul, that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Well, it was startling enough for Paul to describe Abraham as ungodly. David. It's ungodly. But here in these verses, Paul says, Abraham was declared righteous while he was what? Still a Gentile. Before he was circumcised. The Israelites believed circumcision was necessary to salvation. Just as some today believe that baptism is necessary to salvation. But before there was a nation called Israel, there was just Abraham who was himself a Gentile, And when God revealed himself to Abraham and gave him that promise, Abraham believed it, 14 years passed before he was circumcised. That means circumcision didn't have any more saving value for Abraham than baptism has for us today. And that's important because Abraham was not saved by the sacrament. He can be claimed as the father not only of Jews, but of Gentiles. The circumcised and the uncircumcised. He is the father of the justified, friends. Of those saved by God and called the children of God. That's why Paul can later say we are the spiritual children of Abraham. So listen carefully. It is not the uncircumcised Gentile who must come to the Jews circumcision for salvation. It is the circumcised Israelite who must come to the uncircumcised Gentiles, Abraham's faith. Do you hear that? It's why the book of Galatians is so much, it causes Paul so much angst when you had the Judaizers going and saying, no, you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Listen, it is not the uncircumcised Gentile who must come to the Jew's circumcision for salvation. It is the circumcised Israelite who must come to the uncircumcised Gentile Abraham's faith for salvation. And what does that mean for you? It means that your religious background is irrelevant. Irrelevant. The traditions and rituals which you keep are irrelevant. It makes little difference that you are baptized and belong to a church. Hold on to that thought for a second. The issue is not even the state of your moral life. Those things are confirmations of a relationship with God. Did you catch how Paul says that the circumcision was a seal of Abraham's faith? We are baptized as a seal of our faith. We participate in the church as a recognition that we are children of God and we are to live in unity with other children of God. But a relationship with God is established by one thing, and that is true living faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. All those other things are important, but they do not create relationships with God. And so, the, the, the most important question that you could be asked this morning is: do you believe? Not did you carry a Bible in this morning, not did you come faithfully as the whatever number of Sundays that you've been here and sat in a chair and listened to me drone on to you today. But do you believe? That's the most important question you'll ever ask and answer. Do you believe that you are a sinner? Do you believe that the law has no ability to save you but only to reveal your sin? Do you believe that God is just in condemning you for that sin? Do you believe that God in his grace and mercy sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sin? And that because of his righteousness, you have been justified, declared righteousness as you believe that those things took place. That's the question. That's the gospel. As Paul writes at the conclusion of chapter 4, verses 23 to 25, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Horatio Bonard captured this thought beautifully in one of my favorite songs, Not What My Hands Have Done. He writes this in one of the stanzas. Not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and not even my tears can bear this awful load. But thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give, give me peace within. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. And so I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine. And with unfaltering lip and heart, I call this Savior mine. That's, that's faith, is it not? And it really is the wonderful news of Romans. We had to get through that hard part, and there's still hard stuff to come. But we had to get through that hard part so that we would recognize what sweetness it is to see the words, but now. To know that Christ bore all of your unrighteousness on the cross your part is to believe what God has said and what Christ has done, and then to tell the world that good news and live in light of that truth. Will you do that? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your grace, your mercy. We are also thankful for your perfect holiness and justice. You would not be God if you were not consistent and righteous. But Father, we thank you that you determined before the foundation of the world that we would not die simply knowing through the law our sin, but that you would be also a justifier of those who would believe. And so we pray, Lord, help our unbelief. And we thank you for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.